CFBS. Adam Gilchrist, thank you very much. And to the BFPS newsroom, I'm Christopher Lee, and you, you are very welcome. At this week's Sit Rep Round Table, here in a cloudy sort of a muggy London town. In the next hour, Afghanistan got it wrong or telling it like it isn't. Next week, the biggest security headache arrives in Afghanistan, battle group on the move, easy peasy or what. The David and Barak show, not playing to packed houses in Washington, is it? And what do we do when Israel bombs Iran? Northern Ireland peace? What peace? China's military on the long march, but where's it going? General Richards is the Navy at half-mast. See Sunday, let's not forget, it's not all the grey funnel line. And Nelson's naval letter, but not a word, not a word to Fleet Street. Well, with me at the sit-rep round table today, Chief Foreign Correspondent of Global Radio News, Christopher Walker, Defence and Foreign Policy Analyst, Dr Martin McCauley from University College London, and Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson. Now, we start... In Afghanistan, 40 commando lost a man on Tuesday. One Royal Gurkha rifles lost three. Rejecting the arguments of those who say we should rethink ANA training, Defence Secretary Liam Fox said, I'm quoting here, very clear that the benefits outweigh the risks because it offers the quickest and most effective way of delivering our campaign objectives and ultimately having UK forces returning home. Julian... He said it, uh, it, it may really um, offer the best um, uh, way of delivering, is it? Well, the hopes have been pinned on it up to now, and, but I believe there is a possible alternative <coughs> which, which has been uh, suggested by some people who know the country quite well, and that is following the tribal route where you go for tribal um, militia, if you like, which gets round two things. One, it gets round the problem the ANA have of being recruited centrally and then sent off to a part of Afghanistan where they don't want to serve, and then they turn their tickets in and say, thank you very much, I'm not coming here again. And secondly, it gets round the fact that it is a tribal country and they don't like being policed by people other than their own tribes. Do you know, it's a bit of, it's a bit of history, isn't there? The 1840s, 1850s, Bengal army... And we said, you've got to go off to Afghanistan and fight. And they said, we don't want to go off to Afghanistan. That's abroad. And what happened eventually? One result was the Indian mutiny, the Sepoy Rebellion. Anyway, so let's learn from history. Um, Martin McCauley, um, I was listening to Arnold Fields, the Pentagon's Inspector General for Afghanistan. He says the capability of top-rated Afghan army unit is exaggerated or overstated by NATO commanders? Inevitable? Uh, in many ways, <laughs> inevitable, but apparently when somebody serves in the ANA, if he's sent to Helmand, he's sent there forever. They never rotate. So if you go down there and you get three months, four months, five months, it's not surprising they, they say goodbye, and the wages are very low and so on. So, And then there's this feeling that the Afghans don't like being subservient. Apparently they use them to open doors and kick down doors, to talk to the natives... <laughs> to collect information and so on, and then they relay the information back back to the uh, NATO soldiers and so on, and they see that as demeaning. Chris, th- th- um, this thing from Arnold Fields, I mean, he is Inspector General, the Pentagon's Inspector General um, for Afghanistan. Now, he either knows really what he's talking about, and saying this is not working, or there is a political movement going on when this is a sort of flying a flag to see who salutes it. 
Well, I think he showed he knows what's going on by producing figures. He had extraordinary percentages of the people who go AWOL, the people uh, who don't, won't fire their weapons. Is it one in ten go AWOL? One in ten go AWOL. They were extraordinary. And, uh, I mean, we even saw it on our television screens the other night, a remarkable piece of film on Channel 4 News. Their reporter was out with their crack American... 101 uh, airborne unit and these two Afghan soldiers smoking the most enormous joint and the reporter said to the Americans look they're supposed to be, you know, you've just given this order to, and they're smoking this enormous marijuana and the Americans <laughs> said, sorry, I can't do anything about that it was an extraordinary sight but also we had, uh, we had some reports that, uh, for example, with uh, going out with the Gurkhas that uh, they, they refuse to carry their own food. <clears throat> yes, and that is, I think, indicative of the fact that the ANA, the majority of soldiers in the ANA, don't want to be in the ANA. There never has been an ANA. That, that has to be underlined. There never has been. It's always been travel-based. It's pushed to, and so on. They have their own unit, and then the Tajiks and the Uzbeks and all the others, they have their own and so on. Uh, and forming uh, a national ANA, I think they'll have to give up that, up that idea, uh, and it's, it's this problem of being uh, seen to be demeaned, that you are subservient. The natives, and the, the Afghans, look at you, look at the soldiers. They're taking orders uh, and doing all the menial tasks. And apparently, this, psychologically, uh, they found this demeaning and the population <coughs> don't really respect them. So who would want to make a, a, a career in the military? And anyway, General Mc, McCain was on television uh, the other day and he said he'd been in Kandahar, and he talked to the police chief there, and the police chief said to him, uh, the Taliban has told me that if I collaborate with the Americans, and of course they're going, uh, we will come and cut your head off. So therefore, the Taliban is a very, very important factor here. It is interesting, uh, Julian, what is it, 119,000 in the ANA at the moment. The idea is to get 171,000. There's some funny arithmetic there, isn't there? Why 171? Why not 175? But anyway, to get 171 um, um, Afghan National Army together. Um, we assume, let's say the Iraqi experience, where you could train the army, but you couldn't trust the police to be what you wanted them to be. Um, there's absolutely no evidence that you can train an army to do what you're leaving them to do. No, there isn't. And, and I think trying to compare the uh, Afghans with the Iraqi army or, is just totally wrong. It's not, it's not too, they're not the same thing. You're talking about two totally different ideas. And, and, and as Martin has said, there always was an Iraqi army, quite, a, quite a, an efficient one, actually. Mm. Um, uh, there always was one. But that wasn't always an ANA. So you're trying to create something that didn't exist. Yeah. And if you go back to the Soviet experience before, when they entered in 79 and left, what was it, 89, the, the Soviet army ended up doing the fighting themselves. Hmm. Because, because the Afghans, even though they're supposedly pro-communist, they said, no, thank you. OK, uh, next Tuesday they're going to have another crack at it, you know. Uh, as many as 70 foreign ministers meet in Kabul. It's the follow-up conference to the one held in London last January. Fundamentally, what happened to the promises of the Karzai administration and the promises of the governments that met in London? Well, on the line, the co-founder and the CEO of the Institute for State Effectiveness, somebody who worked in Afghanistan for four years between 2001 and 2005. She is, of course, Claire Lockhart. Um, Claire, the first point, um, 
this has got to be one of the biggest security headaches anybody's tried to sort of put together. Um, yes, and I think it, above all, it's um, testimony to the enormous support of the international community to Afghanistan, particularly the attendance of um, the UN Secretary General and the NATO Secretary General, um, and a number of foreign ministers from around the world, including those from the Gulf, from Japan, from other countries, really stressing that this is a global commitment to Afghanistan, not just a Western commitment. Yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember, um, when I'm reading your book, Fixing Failed States, um, it was easy to sort of say, I suppose, failed or failing states. And I think, uh, you know, people are committed to try and resolve some of the issues, at least in Afghanistan. But there is that sense that it wasn't a, a state in a beginning uh, that wasn't failed, but it is failing all the time. Every time we look at it, it is failing, failing, failing. Um, yes, there are certainly enormous challenges in restoring the law and order and governance that, as anybody who's worked in the country knows, that Afghan the Afghan population are amongst the first to demand. Um, now, problem of governance isn't unique to Afghanistan. It's as much a problem in Greece or the UK or states within the US today. We all know that the, how does one arrive at good governance in the 21st century is an enormous challenge anywhere on Earth. Certainly, the problems in Afghanistan are, are difficult. Those challenges remain, but I think we've also seen an enormous amount of progress over the years. What would, sorry, what would you, with your experience of this, and watching you, or knowing how you're working through the Institute for State Effectiveness, what would you say a conference like this has got to be able to do that is reasonable, that people can say, yeah, we can actually do that, rather than just coming out with promises? I think that's really important, and one of the reasons why I believe I understand this conference isn't going to be about a pledging conference. It's not going to be about another huge sum of billions of dollars on the table with some future promises that it might be spent one day. This one instead is going to focus on implementation, the how-to, recognizing that unlike a few years ago where there weren't sufficient resources even to pay the doctors and teachers 50 bucks a month, now that problem's been addressed. People have been generous with the commitments, but the real question is how and how to address some of the simple problems, like how does one get basic health care, basic education, and basic... Um, the block grants, the funding out to villages through programs like the National Solidarity Program, which are up and running, which are working. How do we focus on a few simple, large-scale programs rather than get distracted by tens of thousands of small projects that just won't work? The other side of this is that somebody has got to take a grip on really the future of, of Afghanistan, the people who run it in the future. That means higher education. It means regional and local government structures that will take years to come through, and there is a sense, isn't there, that we don't have years. I think so, and that's why it's even more important that it's the Afghan leadership, the Afghan government, and more broadly, Af the Afghan nation and Afghan society that own their future, and that the international community doesn't inadvertently stand in its way by setting up all these thousands of parallel projects that are managed from the outside far better, a 70 or 80% solution, but, and often they tend to be much better than externally ones in, internally. Back in 2001 and two, one of the biggest mistakes that the international community made was telling the Afghan government that they couldn't educate the Afghan population over the age of 11. 
because of the UN Millennium Development Goals, they said primary education is important. As a result, the Afghan government was told they can't put in their national policy any secondary higher educational vocational training, which means that now we've got a huge lacuna in Afghan skills building and capacity building. Now, that is going to take a long time to overcome, but it's not too late starting now. And I think one of the things that people have realized looking at the analysis that Afghanistan is potentially wealthy. So focusing on revenue collection seeing Afghanistan move to become economically sovereign is a really important part of its sovereignty. So we the basic, basic question of following the money. How can Afghanistan increase its own revenue collection so it can meet its own costs and then build into its plans the higher education so that Afghans can run their own country? Um, some people say Afghanistan's never been a state, but to me, I've traveled around the country in 2002, want to talk to Afghans who know what the country was like in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, it did used to have an enormous amount of capacity, and it is within reach, to, but only if we focus on the higher education. Claire, final point on this is that um, listening to a lot of people talk in places like NATO and the EU, you get the impression that most ISAF nations simply want to go home. And the people at this conference next week actually know that. That's not helpful. Um, it isn't, but I think the this is why Kabul conference is critical and future discussions in the, in the coming months will be critical. The new type of partnership that needs to be engineered or, in fact, reaffirmed is one where Afghanistan moves to leading and exerting its own sovereignty. So neither those who are presently in Afghanistan, neither the Afghans nor the members of NATO or the UN, want anything but Afghanistan planned to, to regain its own sovereignty, to restore its own sovereignty. So that is the common goal. The question then is how do the Afghans ensure that they have the capability and responsibility to exercise those, those functions responsibly? Um, both in the security forces and more generally across the other functions of, of governance. So very simply put, the ability to raise its own revenue, educate its own population, and maintain basic standards of governance. Claire Lockhart from the Institute for State Effectiveness. Thank you very much indeed. Martin, um, everything that Claire Lockhart's saying there is, comes from experience. But there's one thing that is missing. <clears throat> The solution in Afghanistan, if there is one, if there is one, is a regional solution. Yes, because Afghanistan is split. It's a huge country. <clears throat> um, what's the population? 40 million or something like that? And no railway. Uh, no, they've got a little railway in the top. And the reason why, they, why the king didn't want the railway was because he knew that foreigners would come in and invade his country. <clears throat> so therefore, he didn't want communications. So therefore, Afghanistan is a country basically with the route. Uh, you can only really go by air. Now, Afghanistan can break down into various uh, units. The north has always been distinctly different. The Tajiks and the Uzbeks and the, and, to, and the Tajiks, because they speak a Persian language, see themselves... Close, close to Iran and Persia and Herat and so on, is, is if they, they look to that. Uh, and that is alien to the Pushtu, uh, who are different, uh, and they control... Who make up Taliban. They, they make up the Taliban. They, the uh, Pushtu are almost entirely t uh, Taliban. And you've got a country in which perhaps federation or splitting, uh, having, uh, say to the Tajiks and the Uzbeks, right, you can be self-governing, uh, and you can, there's potentially a lot of oil and gas there. 
and the Chinese have come in and, and there's a huge uh, copper mine they're developing and the Chinese are hoping to use Afghanistan uh, as a transit to Pakistan and India. So therefore, uh, the North could do deals with the Chinese. Uh, and the Russians are even talking of uh, putting their army again in the Tajik-Afghan border because of the fear that the, that the Taliban will penetrate Central Asia. So uh, this is a country which can be divided into sections. But the, one of the weaknesses uh, of the argument about the Afghan nation and all the rest is that you have to sit around a table and ask the Afghans what they want. All the thinking is... And who do you ask, though? The tribal you leaders. Can't just say no, the, the, you, you go to the tribal leaders because they're the ones whom people listen to and so on. And you ask them, what do they want? And, the, and what many uh, observers have found is they don't want a Western democracy and liberal uh, economy. They don't want that. Uh, they don't want the equality of women and so on. The vast majority don't. So the halfway house is you have to go along with the Afghans and what they really want, because if you don't do that, I, uh, it cannot be imposed, because all the thinking is Western, if you like. It's it's the it's mentality of the outside world. Chris Walker, the, I mean, how many times have you heard that truth? Well, absolutely, but I think also following on on this region, you know, it's a regional problem. The Indians, uh, the Indian government is also uh, already very unhappy at these noises <laughs> emanating uh, from Karzai and actually even, you know, from our own side that maybe uh, talks with the Taliban uh, should be started. The new CDS has been saying exactly. that. Exactly. General Richards. And the, um, in New Delhi, they're absolutely uh, very worried because they think that these talks will actually end up um, in somehow or other with Pakistan and Afghanistan ganging up on India. So they, they're going to the talks, uh, the, you know, the great 70-strong conference, mm. which I think we can almost guarantee at this table will be uh, interrupted in some rather rude way by an insurgent. Um, and they don't, uh, they don't want this, this idea of peace feelers, uh, <coughs> pipes of peace or talks uh, in any way at all. Julian? It's a, it, 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 it's going to be a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm afraid, uh, listening to uh, Leclerc, I got the feeling that one was in a world of unreality. And I know that sounds unkind, mm. and I know that I don't know as much about Afghanistan as she does, but, but, but it just didn't ring a bell with me. It just seemed to me that we weren't <coughs> in, on the same planet, <coughs> actually. And that's been one of the problems, isn't it? All this yeah. good governance that yeah. we're yeah. going I mean, to have when they've all got their hands <coughs> in the till. Exactly. And, mm. and I return to what um, uh, some people have said, which is, is going the tribal route. You've, you've got to go the tribal route. And what it actually means is you've got to give up the idea that you can turn it into a sort of copy of what happens in the UK mm. or France. You've just got to forgive that up. Yeah, and right. also Kabul is not going to run the rest of the country, is it? No. I mean, it's, it's, that's a, never going to happen. Well, that's the only place that is run, isn't it? Yeah. Well, how many times have we called uh, Karzai the mayor of Kabul yeah. and nothing more? But he's not particularly effective mayor either. Right? He's our boy. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's our boy. Not, we haven't got another one. I'm not sure because... What about uh, his brother? He, but but you see, any. the, um, uh, the uh, ace in the pack, who may be the ace in the pack, is China, because they're very interested in Afghanistan and they've got a very... Uh, uh, outward-looking approach to Afghanistan, and they want to get involved, they want to get involved in developing infrastructure. Now, can they do a deal with the Taliban? 
I mean, okay. the, the other thing, picking up on what Martin said, we've got to remember that the Chinese have got a border of Afghanistan, and in that border area, they've got a, quite a strong Muslim population who have been making noises, and so mm. it is in their interests to do some kind of deal which will keep them quiet and, and satisfy them and give them access to uh, the minerals and, and, and trade with Afghanistan. Uh, Julian, just before we leave um, the Afghanistan story, um, a number of people said to, said to me, you know, battle group in Sangin is going to be relieved by the US Marine Corps, uh, 40 commando. Yes. You're not actually having to move a battle group in the sense that this is a big operation, are we? Well, no, I mean, I don't know how they're going to do it, but if I was going to do it, I'd, I'd move in whoever's going to take over from 40 Commando in September, and they'll just take over from them, and 40 Commando will then fly out. Now, there'll obviously be... Uh, some, the desks and chairs. And yeah, and, but there'll be some kit, presumably. They won't want to hand over their vehicles to the Americans. The Americans probably don't want them, because mm-hmm. they've got better ones. So they'll have to do something with those, which will, I assume, mean a big lift by Chinooks and possibly even a big road convoy, one big road convoy out of Sangin back to wherever they're going to go. That's a hell of a target, isn't it? Yeah, don't but give I mean, the date. You, don't give the date, but, uh, but if, if you do it properly, there's no reason at all why you shouldn't get away with it. And if you can get a big, big load of machinery up to the dam... Yeah, uh, you, no. you, you can probably do that. Reminders of the Soviet <laughs> last yes. run to the border. Yes, <laughs> yes. Listen, um, <clears throat> while foreign ministers are going to be talking, or in fact not talking in Kabul, the British Prime Minister David Cameron will be calling at the White House to meet President Obama. On the line, the Pentagon correspondent of the Times, Michael Evans. Um, Michael, um, a reading in your own paper this morning, um, I see that the EU is saying, well, um, perhaps the president ought to be taking a bit more notice of Europe and we ought to get this transatlantic bridge working properly again. Um, yes, particularly helpful for uh, yes. Cameron uh, to have this spread all over the place. Um, mm. But it, it is actually true. Um, Mr. Obama, as everyone knows, has had his problems domestically, principally the BP uh, oil problem and a lot of other things. Uh, and a, a lot of his sort of daily agenda has been taken up with that. Uh, and, of course, with Afghanistan, with generals having to be fired and things like that, um, he has not devoted as much attention as some previous presidents to wooing um, his European counterparts. And Europe has become a little bit fed up with this. And also, uh, uh, President Obama has shown little inclination towards key subjects like trade uh, and finance, where there are some considerable differences of view. So I think uh, Mr. Cameron will find, um, although I'm sure a very friendly uh, White House, uh, that he will find that there are problems uh, that perhaps didn't exist uh, in the previous, uh, well, the previous to previous administration when Tony Blair and George W. Bra- uh, George W. put on so well. It, it, it's true, isn't it, I suppose, that without trying to downplay Mr. Cameron's importance as a new prime minister, and then presumably the White House would want to, although they've met before, would really want to talk things through. It's not, it's not quite the Tony and George show, is it? They're not, it's not going to pay to such big political house in, in Washington. No, I mean, it, it isn't. And to be honest, I can't think of a single foreign leader who you could attach to Obama and say, oh, it's the Obama, you know, whatever show. Mm. Um, I think Obama's very much um, a sort of single figure. He hasn't 
wooed people sufficiently so that there's a sort of great meeting of minds between him and one or two particular leaders. Uh, David Cameron's a new boy on the block anyway. Okay, they've met. But uh, Obama really has got enough on his plate to worry too much about um, real substance with Britain. I'm sure that, you know, when they've had their meeting, they will mention those two important words, special relationship. Uh, but there's a little bit of ho-ho-ho these days because um, I, the feeling certainly in Washington is that Mr. Obama doesn't uh, have such a towards that sort of relationship as his predecessors did. Uh, remember, almost the first thing he'd do when he uh, walked into the Oval Office when he became president was to remove the bust of Winston Churchill. Uh, and I think that, funnily enough, that actually says quite a lot uh, about the new president. Um, the instinct, I suppose, is to say, well, the thing they have in common, of course, is Afghanistan. But there's no need to discuss anything there other than this idea of withdrawal, which is still a funny thing, having, you know, having announced the dates. The one thing that they do have, presumably politically in common, as well as far as the, the two capitals and the United Nations, would be Iran and sanctions. I, I agree with that. I mean, Afghanistan is, is a major problem, but it's, it's one that they're just going to have to um, stick around with. Um, there isn't much difference, if any, between uh, Britain and the United States about you know, what the best thing is to do. And as you say, uh, everyone's got exit in their minds anyway. Iran is absolutely the most important and potentially most dangerous foreign policy uh, uh, decisions that have to be made, and um, I think it will be extremely difficult for someone like President Obama and for someone like David Cameron uh, to do anything other than talk tough diplomatically, um, and which is what they're going to do, they're going to impose uh, more sanctions than the ones agreed under the UN resolution, um, but any talk about military action uh, is just out of the window. Um, it's just not, well, it, it, it's not going to happen as far as troops are concerned. Of course, we're never talking about ground troops. Um, it, it, if there's any military action by America, we're talking aircraft and ships involved, not, not troops on the ground. So I think Cameron can uh, exclude himself from any sort of um, British contribution to any military action. But it's also something with, which neither he nor Obama want to talk about. Okay, Mike Evans, thanks very much indeed. Um, let's go continue that subject because this morning the Oxford Research Group published a new report whose title tells all. Military action against Iran, impact and effects. Here's an extract. The potential for an Israeli military strike on Iran over its nuclear program has grown sharply, but its consequences would be devastating and would lead to a long war. And the report's author is Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of, of, of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Paul, a long war, let's be clear, between whom? Essentially, it would be a very long, drawn-out conflict, not in the sense of a long, intensive war, but sp sporadic incidents. Uh, if there was a major strike by Israel, and it now does have the capability to do that, unlike four or five years ago with all the new equipment, then it would be a strike against Iran's uh, nuclear and missile components. One of the things almost certainly it would do would be encourage the Iranians to withdraw from the non-proliferation treaty and go seriously for a nuclear force, a nuclear deterrent as they would see it. You'd also get much more unity within Iran. <laughs> 
Iran has the capability to make quite serious trouble in the region, but the real problem for the Israelis is that once they've done it, if they then just leave it for Iran to develop nuclear weapons as fast as it can, particularly with underground plant, then the Israelis had to go back and carry on. And at that kind of stage, I think if it began to develop, that is when all kinds of actions could be taken by Iran against people it viewed as the closest allies of Israel. Even if the United States was not involved in this, across the region, and particularly in Iran, what will be seen is the old phrase common in the region, American planes and Israeli markings. Yeah. And, uh, this, this, I think, is the, is, is the crunch point. It would be long-term. Uh, Paul, there's... I think sometimes, um, certainly since June 1967, people have exaggerated the nuclear or or the military capability of Israel. And sometimes we've said, uh, well, in fact, they might not be able to um, destroy the nuclear facilities in Iran. Now, two points. I don't know if you looked at it that closely, but I I got the impression from the report that we don't actually uh, have to destroy everything you destroy the capability to carry on for some time but secondly i was uh, it was horrifying to see how much attention you paid to the civilian damage the civilian casualties from such a strike Yes, uh, on the capability, now that you have the full complement of the long-range F-15Is and F-16Is and the additional tanker aircraft and almost certainly a capability to operate from Azerbaijan and possibly even in a small scale from northeast Iraq in the Kurdish areas, Israel could do quite a lot. But yes, I think your, your point is well taken. There is always an assumption that something like this would be, to use the old jargon, a strike against military real estate. But you can rebuild things quite quickly. It is much more difficult really to assemble the experts and specialists to do that. And you see this in a number of conflicts in recent years where the aim has been actually, to be very blunt about it, to kill the people who would rebuild something. And that's been the case in a number of examples. And and here I think you you would have to see the Israelis take that on board. And that would certainly extend, for example, to, um, you know, engineering laboratories in universities, the sorts of facilities which actually train the people to rebuild the program. Uh, The real estate can be put together very quickly. The people can't. Do you think it'll happen? I don't think there's a huge risk at the moment, but uh, I've been following very closely a very intense debate within Israel today since that report came out. And there is a lot of feeling that Israel has no other option at some stage. I think the greater risk actually could be an escalation which was almost untoward, maybe a crisis developing in Lebanon with Hezbollah, which then escalates. Uh, so no, I'm not, we're not at the stage we were, say, two months before the Iraq war, when it's just about inevitable. I think this is uh, less clear-cut. But behind it all, there's a, a strong feeling among quite a significant number of very influential Israelis that at some time they're going to have to do this. Uh, and that, I think, is one really needs to bear in mind the very dangerous consequences if that should ever happen. The Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Netanyahu, um, he's saying, and again I quote, it's a mistake to think Iran's nuclear ambitions can be contained. They're quite chilling words, aren't they? Yes, and I think he said he described Iran as the ultimate terrorist threat. And in fact, Foreign Minister Lieberman is even stronger in this. Now, that's not true across the whole of Israeli society. I mean, in today's debates, uh, there have been many other voices raised. But it is a strong view among the current political elite. I think one has to face that. Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to SITREP on BFBS 2, Radio 2.
I'm Christopher Lee, still with me in the studio from Global Radio News, Christopher Walker, Defence and Foreign Policy Analyst, Dr Martin McCauley, and Major General Julian Thompson. If you've missed anything, you can catch up by going into bfbs.com forward slash sitrep and clicking on Listen Again. Christopher Walker, your old stamping ground this. Yes, and I was very interesting to hear about the follow-up. I was having a look at Haaretz, which is the main liberal newspaper, the sort of guardian of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, which this morning, and by lunchtime, had over a hundred... Sorry, when you say the guardian, I mean as a newspaper, like the... Yes, I mean a a liberal, uh, hated by the right wing. uh, And they had over a hundred blogs already in response to Paul's report, I mean, just to give you a flavour of, of one or two of them, was one guest, Neville Chamberlain's grandson, works in that group. Another one, flash, think tanks finds preventing your own murder to be too unpleasant to bear. Yes. Now, this is the sort of thing that this report, which has attracted enormous uh, attention in Israel, it was the top story read, uh, you know, this morning. And I think it's extremely interesting that Paul's uh, group has sort of got this thing out into the open, which is what would the consequences be? I mean, this war, a lot of people don't want to think about it. They think, oh, Israel, it'll be like Iraq when they went in and bombed the Azirak uh, yep. reactor and uh, nothing very much else happened. But you see, another thing, is it was particularly interesting at the United Nations, uh, sorry, in Washington the other day, the United Arab Emirates ambassador says there should be a military strike in, uh, on Iran. There is, sometimes we forget there are people in the region who, who say, yeah, we've got to do Well, that. Israel says that it's more than just he's come out in public, but yeah. people like Saudi Arabia are not uh, ensconced to that sort of thing happening. Julian? I'm just harking back to something Mike Evans said. I, mean, I totally disagree that Mr. Cameron can relax, that he might not be invited to contribute something to, to a military action Well, in that's the what I mean. What happens and, if, and not, if we go? Not, not, a, not a landing or anything like that, or putting troops in, but it's, it's a maritime problem. Britain has the best MCM, Mine Countermeasures uh, Squadron, in the world still. Are we going to be allowed to just get away with... Americans are going to say, come on, come and help us uh, with the Western oil problem. Mm. So it won't be just America. We patrol the Hormuz. We patrol. We've got ships there right now operating in in the Gulf. (coughs) And I think that if there was a problem, a maritime problem with Iran, we would get involved. And I think anyone who says we won't is deluding them. There's a lot of experience there. 75 Abdil uh, MCMVs in in the same area, clearing after the Yom Kippur War. Sure, they're still there, the MCMVs are still operating in the Gulf now, this very minute. Martin, I wonder if there is a a, a recognition in this country, uh, in the United Kingdom, that if there is a conflict in the Middle East, we are involved. This is not just, oh, let's talk about Israel, is it? I think the general impression that you get in this country is that is a problem uh, for somebody else or far away. And a conflict with Iran between Israel and Iran, uh, that really concerns them and so on. But I've just been in the United States, and you get a lot of Americans saying, you've got to go in and bomb those guys. Um, we have to support Israel. And if they don't do it, we have to do it. Uh, and if we don't do it, they have to do it and so on. So Ameri- in Amer- among Americans, you find a much greater awareness. This maybe I'm talking far too much to the right wing. Uh, but in this country... Uh, You're also talking... Are you talking sort of Midwest or... or Midwest, yeah. Wisconsin, Iowa, places yeah. like that. You know, Illinois. That traditional area where they say, let's go and do yeah, it. Yeah, let's go and do things. Bring out the farmers. But uh, And so 
you come to this country and so on, and that's a long way away and it doesn't really affect us. And I don't think foreign policy in this country uh, really bites. And there's an interesting thing about American television. There's so much on foreign policy, so much on Afghanistan. Mm. Chris Walker, there's, a, there's a, an aside to this. I was looking at some uh, a report this morning, which is the first one I've seen carried out like this in the United Kingdom. Um, and it was a it was a poll of British uh, British Jewish communities in the United Kingdom. Yes, they are not one hundred percent, are they, for Israel, which is something which I never heard before. They're very dovish. They're not, they're, they're certainly not one hundred percent. These the are the people of, who are marrying out, and <laughs> yes, well, I mean, the Israelis <coughs> on the whole have. Uh, one word for those sort of Jewish critics that live in Hampstead in London and such like they're called self-haters um, and that's the end Do of they that. really say that? They really say that and don't forget if you go and live in Israel, make him, you immigrate you know, immigrate mm. to live there then you, the Hebrew word is to go up, uh, you go up mm. the hill and you make Aliyah, but if uh, you leave, if you've uh, quit, you know Turned your passport in. You become you, part of the diaspora. Uh, you make Yerida, which is to go down. And there's a lot of meaning in those words. They have very little time for Jews who live abroad and make comments on their way of life. Um, Chinese are interested in this, aren't they, Martin? <clears throat> they're very interested because they're desperate that there's no war in the Middle East. Iran, they want to protect Iran because they don't want Iran to dissolve. Uh, there's a lot of trade with it, but also they don't want a, ra- a revolution in Iran, which would turn Iran uh, towards the West. Uh, and the other thing is that the Chinese maintain that their foreign policy uh, doesn't really exist. Uh, it'll support peace and so on, but they don't really have a foreign policy. They only have a foreign economic policy. What, the Chinese? Yes. Uh, that their interests are only economic, so therefore they don't want to get involved uh, in any peacemaking or peace-establishing uh, force anywhere in the world. Yeah, but I was, I was listening last week to um, uh, something that Admiral Mike Mullen, the chairman of the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff, the equivalent to our um, CDS, and he was apparently, or he, apparently he's been telling the president for some time that he's worried by China's uh-huh. heavy investments in sea and air capabilities and its rejection of military contacts with the United States. I'm not now, what's going on here? Well, it's the, it's the row over at Taiwan, which is in many ways artificial. But uh, I thought they were getting friendly. They got an airline running back and forth. Yeah, but, but you have to. Uh, they are symbiotic, uh, symbiotic relationship is symbiotic, economically symbiotic, which means they're they're growing together, and therefore all this other stuff is peripheral. But if you look at the uh, the military, it's very interesting what's happening. Uh, they say. Uh, they want uh, to concentrate on technology, not manpower. And uh, they have had 100,000 applicants from university graduates. Who have? A- the Chinese? In, in April to, to enter the armed services. In other words, they, they, only want uni- they only want university graduates because the new war, war is going to be high tech. At present, it's 60-20-20. 60% of the uh, defense budget goes into the army and they're going to turn it to 50-25-25. Tell me why, pe- why, why graduates want to join the services. Now, I think it's a very good thing, maybe. But uh, that's a lot of people, 100,000, even yes. with a population of, what is it, 1 billion? Yeah, 1.3. <coughs> uh, they see it as a good career. Uh, and uh, Privilege? 
there's lots of privileges connected with it and and uh, you can go into the military, do a certain number of years and then come out and then you'd be employed in the defense industries or something else and you'd have a night position. But what I think they realize is that the military is high tech. If you want to go into something in China and you are a scientist or engineer, the military is one of the places because they, the Chinese have said that the next war will be in, in space, cyber cyberspace and so on. So therefore, IT and lasers and all that stuff, uh, that's the future, and therefore it's a very good career for you. Yeah. Uh, Julian, I mean, we don't get a sense, because we're too, too far away, presumably, we don't get a sense of China anymore, do we? You see, when we had Hong Kong, we were always saying, you know, are they going to come across the border? Etc. We don't get that now. It's almost as it's been abandoned by certainly the Western media. Yes, you, do, you don't see much about it in the media, and you don't see much about the huge uh, amount of Chinese influence in Africa, for example. That doesn't appear very often in the media. The fact that um, they are uh, trying to increase their influence in their own backyard in, in, in the South China Sea and around uh, Malaysia, you don't see that either. Because but, it's not it's not news. The Chinese uh, yeah. military is growing, though, isn't it? It is growing, and the budget. Uh, there's no way of telling how much they're putting in because you don't. The numbers uh, are not realistic. Japanese were saying 17.6 percent increase. Yes, possible. But the China has applied to the UN for permission to mine in the Indian Ocean. What for? There's lots of minerals down there. Oh, I, mean, I see. I thought you meant <laughs> mines. Sea mines. No, 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 yeah. mines. Sea mines. Because I'm sorry. because. You, you could guarantee that that Thursday. will be a Chinese naval operation, first of all, then an engineering operation, because uh, if that succeeds, then they'll put in applications all around the world in the strategic places. And if you look at the Navy, the, the first line of defense is from Japan right down to the South China Sea and Vietnam, and then the next stage will be the Philippines, and the next stage will be Hawaii. And the whole idea is to push the U.S. Navy back to Hawaii, and then, of course, that incorporates and the Indian Ocean as well, yes. They want the Indian Ocean. We'll see what the Chinese are doing uh, with their patrols uh, against the pirates from uh, Somali. Mm. Yes, they're doing that, but they're very careful not to really get involved in any fighting. I thought they biffed one. Well, there was one case where the Chinese sailors were in fact uh, um, arrested by the um, by the pirates, and then Beijing was very quiet and so on, and, and people in China then, said, the people involved, the families involved said, please let them let them out. And they paid a lot of money, and uh, they were released. We must come back to this The thing. question you say about the media is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, well, it is, is it, I, I can't answer, because I'm putting the question, is it because there's increased censorship, or is it just people aren't interested? It's, I don't know how then. Is it too big to understand the concept? Well, look, let's, let's, let's look at it briefly. 1.3 billion people, people. Uh, economically last uh, the, the monthly 10%, figures 10%, 11, 11% mm. this morning's figures of growth figures yeah. I mean we give our eye teeth to have that we and would love to be their, worried about it their figures, well what's happening to their economy as reported yes. in places like the Financial Times yeah. a direct effect on Wall Street yeah. on, on the whole confidence so this is uh, why it's mm. important to us I mean if you, if, you, if you take the Americans at the moment the Americans are still worried stiff that the that the Chinese currency is 
uh, undervalued. So they want the Chinese to revalue their <coughs> currency so that American exports can get in there. But the Chinese won't let American exports get in. Now, the connection with that is Korea, yeah, North Korea, because the Chinese are the only ones that can do the business with North Korea. Yeah, so the, we've all got an interest. The reason why the UN, yes. the uh, <coughs> Chinese currency, is undervalued is because it's pegged to the US dollar, and the US dollar has been devalued. But I thought there was a slight change in there that. There has been 7 or 8 percent, something like that. It moved up a little. But basically, it's paid to the US dollar, and the US dollar has been devalued by something like 20 percent. Listen, go into it. your kitchens, every one, and if you're in the name, go into your galleys. And turn, turn it all upside down. We don't live on yachts, all of us. <laughs> Well, I bought well, this one pair. does, and I look bought. and see where it's made, and then you start to think. Yeah. I'm not, it's I, not I, the I yellow, a, yellow peril stuff. Yeah, I bought a pair of uh, fancy trousers, very very nice What's trousers. What do you mean, fancy trousers? In, well, they're very white and uh, looked elegant and so on. And my wife said you have to buy these and so on. And I thought they were American, and then I, I turned the label. It said made made in Vietnam. Vietnam is there no And I bought some elastic-sided uh, jackaroo boots in Australia, thinking I looked just like a, you know, a cowboy, like. Mm -hmm. yeah, in Australia, and it had "Made in China" written on the boot. Is there nothing? Well, what Julian says about Africa is absolutely, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, the amount of stuff they're right. doing there. I tell you something which um, goes off the news and then comes back. All the sad reasons uh, is Belfast. In fact, mainly North Belfast and the Ardoyne. Shootings and riots. Uh, four nights of it. Um, it's the start of the marching season, or certainly um, Sunday, Monday was the start of the marching season. So this is almost the norm, but what happened to peace? Chris Ryder's on the line from Belfast. Um, <clears throat> Chris, is this in easy, isn't it, too easy perhaps, to pin all this uh, troubles of the past four nights on, on the dissidents? It's much deeper, isn't it? Yes and no. I mean, marches have been a source of aggravation in Northern Ireland for literally hundreds of years. And there have been uh, intense efforts in the last 10 or 15 years to reduce the number of marches where there's uh, a dispute about the route and about the timing. And we're now actually down to four or five situations. And this year, uh, of those four or five, this is the only one where there was serious trouble. So there is considerable progress. But uh, it was clear this year that the dissidents were going to use the marching season to try and whip up st uh, trouble and to try and advance their position within the community to show that they were more powerful than Sinn Féin, to show their rejection of the Sinn Féin peace strategy. And they have succeeded. Uh, it's dead easy because the, the kids are just there. They can be motivated. A gunman uses the kids for cover, fires at the police. And, uh, you know, you've got, you've got the, the, the age-old Belfast problem, the aggro, as the army called it years ago. And... Uh, uh, th there's no doubt that it, that it is a seasonal, it is a, an inherent, it's a genetic problem here. Uh, and uh, while it hasn't been cured, uh, it's certainly not on the scale it was. Uh, the, the aggravating factor really is the dissidents. And, you know, they've been more active along the border. They let off a bomb in a culvert the other day, uh, designed to lure the police into, into the area. Uh, four days later, the police haven't still gone in there, nor has the ATO, because they're already convinced there's a secondary device waiting in, in, in line for them. Uh, there have been a number of similar incidents recently, and um, the, the dissidents are, are the problem. But the, the real root of all this is, is the political vacuum that still exists. I mean, Sinn Féin and the EUP are in government, but they are floundering uh, to take a grip and get things done. Why uh, aren't they, they doing it? You'll have to explain, Chris, for well, those who don't know. Well, the reform of local government 
uh, as, as foundered because they, they just they can't compromise on the boundaries for the new councils. That's good old-fashioned gerrymandering at work. Um, they they, they uh, put together a package to try and reform the legislation around parades. Uh, that has foundered again because the Orange Order won't, won't accept it. Uh, and the DUP are furious with them because they, they went to great lengths to make sure that it was tailored to the satisfaction of the Orange Order. Uh, again, the economy, they're not getting to grips with, with the need to uh, make cuts to develop the economy to, to create jobs, uh, difficult and all as that is in the, in the current environment. And in, in all sorts of smaller problems, they, they are failing to take decisions and to move things forward. There was a very bold scheme for uh, 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 an all-purpose sports stadium at the Mays. Um, that foundered because uh, the, the, the DUP objected to the fact that there would be uh, some uh, portion of the Mays retained as a tourist attraction. So th- there's a complete and utter political vacuum, political deadlock, and, and the dissidents are, are trying to exploit that for all they're worth. And until the two major parties in the government get their act together and begin to work together and begin to achieve things, uh, then you know there's going to be red ground for the dissidents to fly. Chris Ryder, thank you very much indeed. Julian Thompson, uh, what, what, 41 years, aren't we, since the army was called in, is that right? Yeah, yeah 41 years. 1969 it was. Yeah. Called in, yeah. uh, aid of the civil power, etc. 1998, Chris, we had... The Good Friday Agreement. Good Friday Agreement, peace in our time, etc. Don't forget that Julian is well aware that when the army were called in, or we've all forgotten, they were called in to really help the Catholics. They were, yeah. I mean, that's. Uh, I was trying to explain this the other day to uh, an Iranian TV audience, and frankly, I was out of uh, really lost. It was the anniversary of the Battle of the Bronx, July the 12th. Oh. The only thing that helped me was that Holland played the World Cup in orange, and they could, some people could understand at least that William Why was of the Iranians' orange. interest in 1690. Well, because that was what sparked these, oh, these, yeah. these okay. riots, were world yes. television headlines yeah. that you've been. It, it, you said it comes back in the news, and when it does because it hasn't been in the news it's it's big news Let's hear from Alsterman. Yeah. The, the only way to uh, knock their heads together is in fact to reduce funding you're right because uh, as long as there is plenty of money then you don't need to take hard decisions the easiest thing to do is to avoid hard decisions uh, and the orange order can say no we're not going to do that and so on we say right if you don't do that then uh, there's no money uh, and education, local government and so on, if you don't uh, uh, agree on that, then there'll be less money and so on, and you really take hard decisions. Right. Um, Julian, dissidents, um, we sort of tend to play it down, oh, there's, you know, it's the distance, the real area, etc., continuity. This is how Pyra started, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, and Pyra started because um, what happened, uh, as Christopher rightly said, the, the British army went in to protect the Catholics against the against the... Protestants were burning them out of their houses. And, and the Catholics wrote on their walls, IRA equals I ran away. Uh, and so the IRA decided to make a comeback, and, and, and they did it in the form of the provisionals because the officials, or stickies to give them their nickname, decided they'd go a different way, and the only people who were going to do it in the violent way were the provisional IRA. So Para grew out of the 1989, sorry, the 1969 troubles, mm. And so this is possibly another kind of um, uh, growth of another dissident organisation, which no doubt will give itself a name. Yeah. Yes. Okay. 
Hang on, I want to talk because we've got much time. Do you know we've only got six and a half minutes' time? Unless you can get another watch, we're going to have to talk about General David Richards. Now, he's to be the next CDS, as everybody guessed, I suppose. <coughs> On the line from the London think tank Chatham House, the Carrington Professor of International Security, Dr. Paul Cornish. Paul, how is General Richards going to um, take with him uh, the RN and the RAF? and get the sort of strategic defence review that he, General Richards, wants. The, uh, good afternoon, first of all, Chris. Yeah. So the, I think the first thing to say that is that what we've seen over the last um, several months, actually, is the way in which all three service chiefs and um, Sir Jock Stewart, the chief of the defence staff, have actually all been working pretty well together. <laughs> They've all been well aware of the of the dangers of falling, prey, falling foul of inter-service rivalry as the defence review um, gets going. And I think they, they've understood that they've backed off um, in you know, contentious and inflammatory public statements, and they've actually worked together quite considerably. And what we know is, you know, for example, that, uh, as they say, uh, marking of the homework is that two services will mark the other services' um, uh, report or position paper uh, as part of the SDSR process. So you know, there's lots of cooperation and interrelation going on, uh, accepting all the time, of course, that there is and must always be a certain level of uh, of competition. As far as the, the strategic defence and security review is concerned, now this is, I think, more of a challenge because there's, there's simply no way in which um, uh, General Sir David Richards could, could, um, could change things, to be quite candid. Um, he, he'll arrive in post in October just about the same time the SDSR will be, uh, so we're told, will be published. So uh, now he's involved in that process now, of course he is, but I don't think it's possible, uh, at least not as far as I understand it, for him to arrive in post and then uh, expect to change things. And in any case, it would be a slightly odd way of going about things. He is the most senior serviceman in, in Britain, and servicemen don't actually set defence reviews. Politicians do. But they, the servicemen, um, somebody said this morning that when he's told what to do by the Prime Minister, he will turn slightly to the right, double away and do it. Um, but in the meantime, he would be doing using all his political skills to make sure that even though he's not yet CDS, he will get the as close as he can the sort of um, strategic defence and security review that he wants. I think he's already doing that, uh, and I think it's known what he's doing, and, and, and that knowledge um, was nevertheless there when he was interviewed. Uh, all service chiefs were interviewed for this job, and so, you know, he is a known quantity. Um, so I, I honestly don't think this is really going to be um, going to be a problem. I mean, everybody's been saying for a very long time that the next CDS has to be a soldier, and, and I think um, and that's what we've got. Yeah. Um, the Navy is safe with their carriers because they can't do a deal, maybe they'll only um, uh, sail one of them and then the second commander will probably be a Frenchman anyway. But isn't the RN going to be a bit half-mast about all this? Well, I don't think so. I honestly don't think so. I, I, I don't think I'm being naive in this. I, I really do think the three um, service chiefs have been working together and I think um, David Richards has, is a man of sufficient calibre to know that he's stepping up to a different level of job. Uh, and and, and is, you know, from October is going to be uh, the senior defence spokesman as opposed to the chief of the army, as it were. And I think uh, he understands that. The Prime Minister understands that and is expecting that of him. And I think he's going to be able to deliver. Paul Cornish, thank you very much indeed. Um, here's a thought for us. Last Sunday was Sea Sunday. Um, oh, by the way... Something dawned on me as Paul Cornish was talking about, and I was talking about politics. General Richard's daughter, doesn't she work in 
the Prime Minister's office? I don't know. I think she might. Anyway, last Sunday was Sea Sunday. Hundreds of local seaside parishes keep the second Sunday in July a Sea Sunday, marching bands and church services. We tend to forget, don't we, Julian, how much the Merchant Navy especially has given over the past few years. Yes, um, over 30,000 merchant seamen died in the Second World War. Uh, 98% of everything we eat, burn and make comes to this country by sea. Mm. It's a very good reason to have a navy, isn't it? Yeah. As I'm sure uh, Admiral Stanhope will be telling uh, this in the, the new the new, <laughs> new CDS. That's a very high percentage of people lost, and quite often lost and derided at the same time because they weren't in uniform. Well, no, I wouldn't say they were derided. I say uh, just left, um, with, forgotten about. There is a merchant navy memorial actually on Tower Hill, right opposite the tower. But I bet you 99.9% of people don't know it's there. Trinity House have got an eye on it. Listen, last one. Nelson's letter is going up for auction. Just before uh, Trafalgar, we've only got about 20 seconds on this, just before Trafalgar, he writes to the judge, uh, the governor of Gibraltar and says, we're running out of uh, drinking water, Squire, or whatever, however you... But don't tell the press. Don't tell the press because the enemy will be rather pleased about this. Now, as an old newsman, uh, uh, Christopher, uh, it's not much difference between 1805. No, uh, a, f- a familiar, a familiar ring to that in every way. Blame the messenger. Blame the messenger. It's a. It, I'd love to get an idea of that. It's only going it, to. One thing it's not telling us, and that is that there's the admiral just before the war, ordering up onions, spuds. And water, yes. Perhaps your friend Mr. Stanhope will be doing the same. (laughs) (laughs) We're going, we're going, we're going. We're going, thanks to Chris Walker, Gillian Thompson, Martin McCauley, and me, Christopher Lee. Until next week, goodbye. Guess what? Mary. Mary's in the hut. Footwear with Christopher Lee.